Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Hi, Sean. Hi, Dominic. Thanks for joining me on Culture Bites once again. Thank you. Becoming a bit of a regular now, Sean. (laughs) Watch out. Let's hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So in this episode... I want to touch on, you, you run a professional development event for our accredited network, so people who are accredited to use our diagnostics, such as the Lifestyles Inventory, can come along to these, these free events that we put on to develop their skills. And one that you just ran fairly recently in Melbourne, I think just a couple of weeks ago, was on the childhood origins of thinking and behavior styles. Yep. And we had a number of people write in to us and say, I'd love to come, but I'm in Tasmania or I'm in... Queensland or whatever it was, I'd love to come along. Could you film it or something? And I thought it would be boring as hell to film a workshop, but instead we could have a conversation about it on the, the podcast. So how do you feel about yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely good. Be great. Let's give it a crack and see what happens. I mean, I, I, I'm aware of the fact that it's a well-received presentation, so how it translates in the podcast, we're about to find out. Yeah, let's, let's give it a go. And for me, this is a really interesting conversation because you know, it's kind of about that leadership impact stuff or parental impact or <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Yep. And I know we've got a case study um, that's on our website about a guy called Stephen Bright. And he talks about, you know, he, he got feedback that he was, you know, had passive behaviors himself and he was driving passive behaviors in his team. He's kind of like, mm, you know, okay. In that case study and what was interesting was when he got home, it was when he was at home and his son came up to him and was sort of like, Daddy, is it okay if, but if not, that's all right. But, you know, very, very passive behavior. And he, that's when he re- realized, oh, man, I'm driving this to my own kids. So what would be fascinating is to understand, okay, well, how, how do those thinking patterns and behavior get driven into kids or yep. get um, formed for kids, for ourselves, as well as our own children? And how can we do that in a constructive way or, or why do people do it in other ways? Look, I usually begin this presentation with a disclaimer. And that is, it's not designed to teach uh, our accredited practitioners suddenly become family of origin therapists. But the object of the exercise is we did find some years back that a lot of the accredited practitioners were saying that in their coaching, their candidates, their focal manager often starts to talk about their family and their kids. And I mean, this reflects one of my own values. I mean, the, the, the family stuff is significantly more important than the work stuff to me. And so... We got this demand from accredited practitioners, if you like, for understanding what the implications are around developing childhood behavior patterns and how if people are learning constructive styles as in a management role or whatever it might be through our stuff, what could they learn from that as well that could help them bring up constructive children? Yeah, right. So getting tips from the workplace and then translating it back yep. to back to the home. So where does this all kind of start? How How are we shaping kids? Sure. Well, I mean, if you put up with the language, because it's a direct quote from a poem, but there's a very famous poem around children by written by, um, oh, I've forgotten his first name, Larkin. But if you Google Larkin, it starts off with our parents, they do fuck us up. Uh, and uh, that's it's a sad truism. And uh, I mean, I've been originally trained as a clinical psych and been involved in the psychological industry one way or another now for a very long period of time. But the old expression that the Jesuits are attributed to using of Again, it's old, so it's sexist. Give me the boy of seven and I'll show you the man. 
I think it's very true that uh, a lot of our behavioural patterns and our thinking styles that we use in adulthood are actually derived from our upbringing and the way in which our parents shaped our behaviour. I mean, we talk about shaping culture in organisations and all that sort of stuff. Likewise, parents shape culture in the family and children grow up with certain behavioural expectations and norms and that they behave in certain ways, etc. And that's what we decided to look at. Also, uh, worth keeping in mind, uh, assuming you're one of our accredited practitioners, the original Lifestyles Inventory, when I first started with Human Synergistics in 1988, was what we now know as LSI-1. Clay Lafferty was a uh, classic cognitive psychologist. He was interested in what ran around inside your head. He was interested in what was helping you, what was hindering you, and that running around your head stuff, and how could he help improve your self-concept in order to help you become more effective in your role and overcome some of the deficiencies and doubts that you might see in yourself. LSI 2, the behavioral version, didn't come by for several years after that. Yeah, right. And so if, if we start there then, so you talked about self-concept. Yep. So what is it yep. or how are we yep. forming that self-concept sure. when we're kids? What yep. goes into that? Yeah, look, there's there's many components to what's referred to commonly as a self-system, the self, self-image, self-esteem self-efficacy, all those kinds of things. So they, they each have different meanings, but self-concept is the, the broad one, which may include self-image and self-efficacy, et cetera. So self-image is by and large made up of three components. Firstly, is beliefs about yourself. So what, what do you believe about yourself? I'm good at this, I'm bad at this, uh. I'm helpful, I'm unhelpful, I'm a grumpy old bugger, I'm whatever it might be. And what are the, the second component is what are the thoughts about you have, about how others think of you. So do you mm. think other people see you as friendly, approachable, popular, grumpy, mm. angry, mm. whatever it might be? Mm. And the third component is a somewhat complex one, but it's the perceptions in you about what you see yourself as being now versus what you think you should be. So mm. as uh, so much of the literature will say, if there's a strong disagreement between what you think you are and what you think you should be, then that creates pressure on you internally, will have implications for your self-concept. So this self-concept is developed throughout the entirety of your life. So if you're 25 years of age, it's taken 25 years to get to this point. If you're 55, 55 years. So again, three seems to be the number for this podcast. There are three main components that contribute to the development of the self-concept, these beliefs about yourself, these thoughts about how others see you, etc., And those three things are all of the experiences that you've undertaken throughout the entirety of your life and the conclusions that you've drawn from those experiences. I'm good at this, I'm bad at this, I'm popular, I'm not popular, I'm good at playing football, I'm hopeless at it, whatever it might be. Secondly is what's called the impact of significant others. And so the significant is important, not just a trendy word. So when you define somebody as being significant to you, then when they say something to you about you or whatever, you'll place great emphasis on that. And the obvious one is the parent. So when your father sees you're stupid, chances are you'll grow up thinking you're stupid. Mm. And I mean, a very simple example is uh, one of the few training sessions I run nowadays is the accreditation and the organizational development tools, the culture inventory and effectiveness inventory. And we have to understand at a very basic level some statistics to be able to answer the type of questions we'll get. And uh, the number of times people sort of say, look, I'm mathematically challenged. And my response to that is no such thing as mathematically challenged. It's just some dumbass teacher when you were eight or nine years of age told you that you were hopeless at maths and you spent the rest of your life thinking you're hopeless at maths. So Mm. mathematically challenged says you just look at numbers and go gaga. 
because of what some teacher said to you a long time ago. So this impact of significant others and wrapped around all of that, the third element is the conclusions that you form about yourself as a consequence of that impact and those experiences. So they all funnel down into creating this thing called self-concept. And we use words you have, and they are sort of judgmental type words if you like, but you have a negative self-concept or a positive self-concept. And a positive self-concept is really where you have a realistic view of yourself. I know I'm good at this. I know I'm bad at that. Da, 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 da. And healthy relationships with people. And negative self-concept tends to be the opposite of that. So it's uh, unhealthy relationships and unrealistic standards. So driven by what you think you should be, the nasty imperatives of life, and irrational and self-defeating beliefs about themselves. I'm no good at this. I'm hopeless. I'm worthless and that kind of thing. So these, uh, the whole point of the exercise is that any elements of these negative self-concept descriptions hinder people from realizing their true potential because they really simply don't know what their potential is. Uh, and it's interesting when you talk about that whole self-concept thing because it's about okay the impact of significant others and our experiences, but also the conclusions we draw from those. So yeah, so we it passes to our own lens as well. Correct. And and what's interesting about the LSI and and what we do is that we have a strong belief that people can grow, learn, develop. Yep. And so whatever your experience at this point, you can actually, and whatever your thinking style, you can change that. Correct. Right? But it's yep. about challenging some of those beliefs you might yep. hold about yourself and yep. your self-concept yep. and examining them. Yep. One of the things to keep in mind, and it's the ultimate challenge for the parent, is that the child, it's only natural, the child sees themselves as the center of the universe. And I'm talking child, which includes teenage years, the whole nine yards. And it's best encapsulated as the famous metaphor in this industry that uh, that a mum and dad are driving the car and there's a little four-year-old girl in the back seat and it's nighttime and the moon's out and the girl says, mummy, why is the moon following us? So the child does see themselves as the centre of the universe. So when things happen around that child, they always see themselves as being part of it. So this puts an awesome responsibility on parents. And when I talk to people about teenagers, and again, one of my throwaway lines is that when your 16-year-old daughter gets really angry and says, I didn't ask to be born, actually, she's correct, she didn't ask to be born. You chose to do it, so therein lies the responsibility of being the adult. So what we're interested in is how the self-concept is reflected at the individual level and its implications for people. So what we find is that the constructive styles reflect a positive, come back to that word again, a positive self-concept, and the defensive styles, both passive defensive and aggressive defensive, are significantly less and technically a negative self-concept. So there's self-defeating thinking and behavior going on there. That, as I said earlier, is stopping people from reaching their true potential because they don't actually understand what their true potential is. And that is one of the transformative aspects of the lifestyles in between, particularly the LSI 1 and everything I will talk about from now on, and it's to do with LSI 1 thinking, self-concept, not uh, attribution and observed behavior. That's where the LSI 1 becomes so powerful because it can help people understand that and begin to learn what their true potential is and simply fly. Oh. So if we then start kind of, I guess, peeling back the onion, for what are those beliefs that are underpinning yep. constructive styles? If we start there, what are the actual self-concept self, self concept and yep. so on and the beliefs people hold about themselves? Yep. Okay, so let's go through it style by style. And I hope you can stick with me on this. So we're going to start with constructive. That's the easy stuff. That's what you want to develop. 
But when we look at the uh, beliefs, so again, it's the self-concept, remember, is made up beliefs about myself, thoughts about how others see me, and perceptions on my actual versus my should, right? Mm. And so if I'm high in achievement, my beliefs about myself will be that uh, my effort can make a difference, that I can do things, that I get things done, I like to do things well, I get a sense of satisfaction, thus the satisfaction top half of the circumplex, I get a sense of satisfaction from doing what I do well. Mm. So that's how I believe about me and how I think other people see me is that they will see me as getting things done. Uh-huh. They'll see me as confident. They'll see me as, as capable and sort of a results-oriented leader is actually one of the items in the inventory to capture that. Uh-huh. And in terms of the uh, the actual versus should stuff, it, it, it's a it's realistic. It's pragmatic. I mean, I can't do everything. I can't be perfect. It's not about being perfect, but I uh, will focus my efforts where I can make a difference. So that's the thinking behind the achievement, behind self-actualizing. Whereas achievement is about task and doing things, self-actualizing is about self-learning and understanding. So if I'm high in self-actualizing, the beliefs I'll have about myself is that I'm in, I seek to understand. So I'll try and figure things out, try and understand how and why things work. And that whatever I do, I have to get a sense of pleasure from. It's not a, not in a selfish sense, but I like to get enjoyment from what I do. So uh-huh. it might be I know I get stuck in a traffic jam every day going home from work on that street. Let's go a different street and just experience a different traffic jam because that could be slightly more interesting huh. than last night's traffic jam. Or you could uh, listen to a podcast. Yeah, or you could listen it. to a podcast, <laughs> yeah. So how others see me, if I'm high in the self-actualizing way of thinking, is people see me as relaxed and, again, confident like achievement, creative, and they'll actually see me as a reasonably interesting person. So one of the assumptions in people who are highly self-actualizing is that they are interesting. And one of the most self-actualizing TV executives I ever worked with would, uh, if he'd been away on a holiday, he would actually start off every executive meeting with telling the executive team all about his holidays. Not in an egotistical way, but his assumption was, that uh, because he believed what he did was really interesting, that other people would find it interesting as well. And believe me, they did. It was a very, very interesting man, did really interesting stuff on holiday, not the usual. And in terms of the self-actualizing perceptions of actual versus should, again, somewhat like the achievement, it's I'm, I'm not perfect, it's not about being perfect, but it's about doing what you do well. I'm constantly looking to learn. I know I can improve. I know I can grow. Give me opportunities. And one of the really important things, and which is why self-actualizing is at the top of the circumplex, if you think of it as a hierarchy, is self-actualizing, fundamental belief around perceptions to actual, is that it's not about me. So it's not personalized. So you can yeah, right. you can criticize my idea. That's fine, because you're not criticizing me. Right. Whereas if I'm defensive, I immediately go into you criticizing me. Right, not you just tie yourself idea. up with the idea. Yeah, yeah, correct. So with humanistic, we now move into the people side of stuff. So beliefs about myself is that uh, I am interested in others. I have a fundamental belief that people are basically good. I think people will find me supportive and helpful and caring. And the perceptions on actual versus should is that I, I trust my judgment and I trust others and I'll learn from that. And then the last of them is the affiliative, the friend, approachable, the brotherly love kind of style, if you like is that the beliefs about myself is I do need warm, friendly relationships with people. I like people. I need people that I can rely on, that I can be close to, that I can trust, that I can be authentic with and all this kind of thing. Thoughts about how others see me is they will see me as approachable, friendly, likable, easy to get on with. And perceptions on actual versus should is that you know most people will get on with me. You can't please all the people all the time. 
I'll try, but not always achieve that. So you can see all of those are very healthy ways of uh, viewing oneself. And so we move into the defensive styles. Yeah, sure. Well, maybe what would be interesting, Sean, is jumping jumping forward before we get into the defensive styles and, and talk about how do we actually develop those styles? Because those are all very positive things, right? Yep. As, as we know, and and they line up basically to the to the LSI into adulthood, right? All those self beliefs and self concepts. Yep. But I guess the question on everyone's lips is. <laughs> How do you actually build those kinds sure. of behaviors in your kids yeah. if if that's what you're trying to do? So it's a really very important question. So I'll sort of try and tick off a bit of a list for you. The the first, and uh, as every psychologist or therapist or counselor will tell you, the most important is unconditional positive regard. Mm. So there is no condition placed upon the love for the child at any age. So. When I walk through a shopping mall every now and again and I hear some mother or father saying to their little kid, you know, mummy won't love you if, or mm. all that kind of stuff, I just cringe. There goes another mm. child that's going to need a serious LSI in about 30 years' time. <laughs> so uh, the value we for We the- don't want that, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I guess, why Larkin started his uh, poem with that particular first line, how mm. parents they do. So- this unconditional positive regard and love means a lot of different things, but I'll come back to that. So throughout, in, in the family, the family values and the stories that are told through the families are about achievement and helping others. So children learn that you know achievement is something to strive for, that it's a good thing to be wow. able to see that you can achieve certain things, that you can put your mind to something. And you can make it happen. Huh. And of course, they're helping others. So achievement's a task. You've got to balance it with the people stuff. Huh. Is that the kind of stuff, Sean, like uh, I've heard recently people saying, you know, people often say like your kid comes home with a good test score or something. And people traditionally would say, oh, you're very smart. Yeah. You're very smart. But it's actually instead saying you must have worked really hard Correct. to study for that. Yeah. And that's the, linking that yeah. effort to outcome. I the, suppose. the expressions are very subtle. So the tendency is to say, you know, good girl or good boy or something like uh, that. And those sorts of expressions, as subtle as they are, actually teach the child what's called ego task attachment to state. So if I do well at school, I am a good person is unconditional. Uh, Positive regard is now conditional. Uh, and so it really is as subtle as that. But another way that's really quite important is um, giving kids lots of responsibilities at a young age and involve them in family decision-making. And I mean a very young age. So, I mean, when, when I had babies, the the, uh, the norm very much was to sort of play aeroplanes to get the spoon of food into the mouth kind of thing. Uh-huh. So now being a grandparent, I'm delighted to see that the norm now is to let the kid feed themselves. And yes, you're going to be picking up food for the next half an hour afterwards. Uh-huh. But it's uh, that taking responsibility for themselves. And I guess if they get hungry enough, they figure out it should go in the mouth and not on the floor eventually. It's interesting, Sean, on that one. I lived in Denmark for a while and I actually quite like the parenting style there and, and they're very big on that. So yeah. kids dress themselves yeah. from a very young age. Oh, and and absolutely. if you think about Denmark, it's bloody yeah. minus 30 degrees outside or saying So there's a lot of layers and jackets to yep. put on. Yep. And it probably slows you down initially, but yep. you know, speeds them up in the long term. Absolutely. And the kids are very independent and yep. stuff. I mean, independence at an early age, in fact, psychologically, children should be independent by about age 12. And so the more they can make decisions for themselves at a very, very early age, the better. Mm. Uh, emphasis is on learning and growth. And so the people, the parents talk about learning. They give 
talk about things in terms of being learning opportunities, etc. Mistakes are seen as opportunities to learn, so there's a lack of punishment mm. and there's lots of praise and positive reinforcement that goes on. Mm. There is lots of learning about yourself within the sort of, in inverted commas, competitive world we live in. So one of the mistakes I think a lot of people make is when they put their kids out there in sports is that they have systems like not scoring the game or something like that so that nobody is a loser. Hmm. Actually, children need to learn that sometimes you lose. You, sure. you don't get selected for the team, that you are not one of the best at playing whatever it might be. In fact, you could be downright hopeless at it, so it's important that you know that because you can't be good at everything. Hmm. And so we take away learning about themselves and how to deal with that. It's called resilience. Uh, we reduce children's resilience when we do all these super-duper nice things that actually are not building achievement thinking but building something else instead. Well, because well, that's a super common theme today, isn't yeah. it? So, yeah. And I always find it funny because the kids know the score anyway. Bet your bottom dollar they're count, keeping count. Man, kids, kids, kids need to know how well they're going. And the Everyone f- does. Yeah. And the fact that they get beaten yet again, well, it's just, you know, so be it. You know what that leads to, Sean, is 15 years later you turn up on American Idol or something <laughs> and no one's ever told you that you're a terrible bloody singer <laughs> and now the whole nation's going to find out. Perish the thoughts. It's <laughs> true though, isn't it? <laughs> it always blows me away. There's people who are just... Yeah. have completely no idea that actually yep. they're a terrible singer because yep. no one's ever been able to tell them. Yep. yep. And they can't hear it themselves yep. or something. Yep. Okay, sorry, that's a bit of a sidetrack. But... Uh, that's right. No, I mean, that, that, that's an important sidetrack because it's what like, what we see going on there at the moment, that these sort of very nice, well-meaning parent groups mm. are sort of saying we don't want our kids to think they're a loser. I mean, losing doesn't mean you're a loser. Losing means you lose. It's two different things. Mm. You know? And everybody needs to learn what they're good at and what they're not so good at, and that's Mm. one way of doing it. So get kids involved in outdoor activities and sport. I mean, this is a real challenge in today's world of iPads and smartphones and things, which is going to have, I have to say, serious impact on society yet to come. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily in a positive way, but that may be another podcast. (laughs) There's respect, Shard. So another important thing that contributes to growing constructive self-concept in children is respect for each other in the family unit. Mm. So the parents don't criticize each other to the children and that kind of thing. Or parents don't slag off the kids' friends and these kind of things. You you never want an argument telling your son that you don't like their friends. I mean, that's just ridiculous, but easy to (laughs) fall into that mistake. So respect is fundamental. And, uh, I mean, there's many more, but I'll end with this one, uh, emphasis on experience. So uh, to get technical about it, it's called organismic valuing, that we can physically appreciate something and re-experience that something by thinking about what it was that we experienced and what that experience meant to us. So, you know, simply taking the kids to the beach for the day, Mm. coming back in the car, talk about what you experienced at the beach. You know, what did you enjoy? What did you not enjoy? and all this kind of things that uh, really important for kids to see that it's the experience of the event that matters, not just the event itself. So this idea of placing existential existential value on experience is really important. And that gives the the child a sort of a sense of meaning. And as we all know, meaning is very important at a number of different levels. Mm. And so with these different constructive styles, 
Is it really just about putting all these things together? I mean, are you doing it all the time? It's quite like, because just thinking earlier about your good boy, good girl, it's quite subtle. Yeah. It's quite subtle, quite difficult. It is. And of course, language is a very observable aspect of behavior. So the expressions that we use and, and how we say things is absolutely critical. And inevitably with verbal communication, people will put alternate meetings to what you're saying. So you've got to be oh. quite clear in what you're saying and what you mean. Oh. It's oh. not easy. I mean, it's, it's probably the most important function that any human being will perform is to have a child and it does not come with a leader's guide. <laughs> if only it did. Well, yeah, people will try and sell you one. I suppose there's a million books well, out there. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's books and books and books on raising babies and things, but yep. <laughs> I'll take that as no comment. No comment. Yep. Um, well, should we move on then to looking sure. at some of the passive styles? So if that's the kind of how-to. So a lot of that for me was around, you know, if you just think about the styles, right, linking yeah. linking the child's effort to outcome, effort to achievement, and that their effort makes a difference and so on. So it's all those beliefs that underpin those constructive styles. I guess when we move into the passive styles, what I'd be interested is like, we all want this constructive stuff. Yep. So why do parents end up driving a passive instead or an aggressive? But if we start with passive, we always talk about people do things for a reason, right? No one yep. does things just because. Yep. So they must get something out of it. So why would parents be doing that? Well, what do the parents get out of having a non-constructive child? Is it? Yeah, I guess so. Like why yeah. would because they do encourage that kind well, of behavior. Yeah, I mean. It's, I mean, it comes back to what we do as an industry called leadership. It's the leadership style. So if the parent is controlling, then the parent is going to want to see that control reflected in the child. So when your daughter comes out with a pink sock on one foot and a yellow sock on the other and all the rest of it, the controlling leader will want them to go back and look like they should look like. So, mm. it's so much about leadership is the need to be in control. So much of our parenting is, I have to say, the need to be in control. So we can establish conformity, obedience, compliance, and conventionality. Very simple in children simply by the way in which we use rules through the family, the way we talk about why things get done. Wow. So instead of talking about the necessity to do a good job, we might talk about the necessity to do a good job to please the teacher or something like that. Right. So again, that subtlety of the language. Mm, okay, so if we jump in then and go through the different styles under yep. the passive cluster, so approval's the first. Approval, yeah. So we come back to these beliefs about themselves, thoughts about how others see them and perceptions on should versus actual, or actual versus should. So the beliefs about themselves and approval is that I don't like conflict and I feel okay if people like me mm. or if I can please others. So one mm. way in which people can like me is I can please them. Mm. So the important thing there is is a, an obsession with keeping people happy, not upsetting people, and uh, avoiding conflict. So th they see themselves as friendly, kind, and agreeable, and they are kind. I mean, they give you the shirt off their back kind of kind. Mm. Uh, the perceptions around actual and, and should is that sometimes I can fall into being a bit of a victim. So because I went in there expecting to get pleasure back from you and I didn't get it, I now feel victimized just a mm. little bit. That would seem to be a really common one in kids, right? Yeah, it is. Because yeah, everyone is. wants the nice kid, yep. play nice, <laughs> right? Yep. Well, that, that's where, I mean, it, it, come back to the word I used earlier, resilience. Building resilience in kids is that, you know, not everybody's going to like you all the time. There are people like bullies who are not going to like anybody. 
and talking to children in the psychology of bullying is the bully has probably been bullied somewhere mm-hmm. and simply reflecting that behavior. So parents have those conversations with children. They may establish very simple mantras like, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me kind of thing. Becomes exacerbated with social media. You can go viral within seconds with a photograph of somebody in an awkward position mm. and you become the laughing sock of the world within seconds. So that just makes all of that stuff so much riskier. Mm. Conventional style beliefs about themselves I need to be accepted by others. So note the subtle difference with approval. Approvals I need to be liked. This is I need to be accepted by others. And I feel okay about myself if I conform to what others want. And so they tend to be often quite high achievers because what others might want, parents, teachers, etc., is high achievement. But it's high achievement within a very structured system. Take that structure away and the achievement falls apart. So thoughts about how others see them is that they'll be reliable and dependable and respectful to others. So again, those sort of items are in the inventory. And the perceptions on actual versus should is really... As long as everything remains relatively stable, I'll feel quite positive about myself. But change, the very nature of change is challenging. So when things begin to change, I get anxious about that and I get caught up in the shoulds. The almighty imperatives are very dangerous. The ought tos, the have tos, the shoulds uh-huh. create all sorts of dissonance in the human being. Do you think, just thinking, John, as an example with, with kids, is you know they exert their independence, You know, I'm going to do my own thing. And they wear the you know latest yep. trend in clothes or whatever, but they're all wearing the same thing, right? No, so that's, that's conventionality, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and that's the yep. significant others. Yep. It's not just parents, yep. but friends. Yep. And and, I, and I'll just deviate to teenagers for one moment. I mean, the number of times a manager said, "I'd love to give Alice I to my teenage kid, boy, girl, or otherwise," because oh. what you observe on the surface is a lot of aggressive, defensive behaviours. But I can tell you pretty much every LSI one that I've ever seen on a teenager, the predominant styles of passive-defensive. Are passive-defensive. Are passive-defensive, the the green styles, because they are. during A very important phenomenon taking place during the teenage years called individuation, where the child is moving away from being the parent's son or daughter to being an independent adult, individuation. So they are individuating from the family. Uh And so the first and most obvious way you'll see that, and it's not necessarily teenagers, it could start at about 10 or 11, is when your sweet little 11-year-old says, uh, Daddy or Mummy, could you drop me off a couple of blocks down from the school (laughs) gate today? Well, they just don't want to be dropped off in front of everybody at the school gate anymore. They are beginning to individuate. Does not mean to say they reject you as their parent. They don't love you anymore. It's a very natural occurrence, and you should grab it running with both arms. It's the beginning of individuation. So what you see with these this sort of lack of individuation in children is that they become bound by the societal norms and adhere very strongly to those norms. And in this case, the society is the family. Oh, okay. And so what about the next one, independent? Dependent, well, the beliefs here, I mean, we're getting right down to the bottom of the circumplex here. So it is a hierarchy from the most constructive to the most defensive, and dependence pretty close to it. So the beliefs about myself are that I lack confidence, and I'll go into a task thinking I can't do this. So that's the natural assumption is oh. I can't do this. So in thoughts about how others will see me, they will see me as modest and lacking confidence. And the should versus actual is that I'm weak. I'm not strong enough. Mm. And so you're starting to get a very negative view of self. Mm. And last but not least, right down the bottom of the tree there is avoidance. 
which is around, I don't want to get hurt, whether it's emotionally or physically. So thus the avoidance behavior. I don't want to expose myself to risk. So when other kids are doing something that might be vaguely physically risky, like jumping off the garage roof or something like that, this will be the kid that doesn't mm. find a reason not to. So think sort of the thoughts about how others would see them, lacking confidence, hesitant, probably introverted. They tend to keep themselves to themselves, but it's just this, this social distance that they like to maintain because mm. that reduces the threat. Mm. And the perceptions around actual versus should is that I'm, I'm basically inadequate. I'm nowhere near, like the difference between the should and the actual is a million miles. Yeah, I'm right. nowhere near as good as I think I should be. So they are constantly self-critical. And that's you'll find that when you're debriefing a, an individual focal manager, if they're high in avoidance on the LSI1, they will be quite self-critical. Okay, so if those are the styles of passive styles, where are they kind of coming from? How are they being driven by parents or... or um, you know, significant others like friends, yep. for instance, yep. could be, or, or a teacher. Yep. How are those getting driven and yep. so we can recognize that? Sort of the opposite of what I said about the constructive stuff to a large extent. So where the constructive uh, styles are developed in children through unconditional positive regard, now these passive defensive styles are driven through conditional regard. Mm-hmm. So the, the child learns that their value is based on being good or doing good or something like that. So good equals good kind of stuff. So, you know, it comes with conditions. So rather than focusing on learning hard to do well on the test, we'll give them rewards Mm. to uh, do well on the test. So if you get an A, then I'll buy you that dollhouse or whatever. (laughs) And obviously, got to be careful here, a one-off occurrence or a two-off occurrence of that is not a big issue. Right. But if it's a constant pattern, it is. Right. So the values and stories, remember the values and stories for achievement were around getting things done and helping others. Mm. This time around, the values and stories around subordinating oneself to others. So you'll often see it in families with very strong, perhaps religious beliefs or something like that, so that we subordinate ourselves to whatever that happens to be, and children learn up, grow, grow up learning passive defensive thinking patterns. Mm. There's, there's not clear expectations of the children. Uh, It's not as if they have to be written on a whiteboard in the kitchen, but uh, the expectations, there may even be contradicting expectations to create the sense of safest thing to do is nothing. Generally, lots of very strict rules. Mm. Uh, I mean, again, talking about teenagers with parents, my stock response is, does it really matter if the bedroom is a mess? I mean, yours probably was when you were that age. Mm. So there's lots of strict rules, lots of formality around things, lots of strict times, etc., the control, so I, I talked a little earlier about the leadership equals con- need to be in control stuff. So the parents are definitely in control in this kind of family, and the children learn that they are dependent mm. upon the parents. Uh, the children are not encouraged to set goals. That's where the uh, no score in the game thing comes in, if you like. Mm. Uh, or if, the, if they do set goals, they tend to be too easy, so Very children soft. are not learning. I mean, the best sort of goal from an achievement point of view is a 50-50 chance of achieving it. Mm. So there's a reasonable chance of not achieving it. That's the challenge. But it's a realistic goal because there's a 50% odds. There's little feedback on in the family. It's not a family that sits down and talks about how people function and how well people perform. Mm. On the other hand, I mean, good performance will go largely unnoticed, but mistakes will be punished. So if I do well at school and something, I may not get too many brownie points. 
but if I fail or if I behave badly just that one time I blew up and hit a kid or something and the whole system will fall down upon me and I'll feel bad about myself mm. and guilty and all the rest of it. So you've got to comply. Yeah. Um, uh, so mistakes are seen as bad. And another another very important aspect which involves the wider family is conflict is avoided and there is active withdrawal from conflict. So Christmas is a good time to give an example of that one. I mean, if you have family members, brothers, sisters, uncles, aunts, grandparents, whatever, Mm. that you don't really want to have for Christmas, but you have invited them for Christmas. Now, the more you talk about how you really don't want to have them for Christmas, but you have to have them for Christmas, that teaches children to avoid conflict. Mm. and uh, that's one of the big issues around Christmas, as any therapist or counsellor will tell you. It's the busiest time of the year. (laughs) That's right. Brings up all those issues. What about, Sean, thinking of Christmas is, I don't know if it's in here, but you see some of those pranks and stuff on on, uh, YouTube or whatever where parents will give their kid a really rotten gift just to see how they react kind of thing. And you know the interesting, so I saw one, I think they gave them like a pear or something like that. Yeah or whatever it was, it was something pretty much. And the kid is really sweet, quote unquote, and is like, oh, thank you so much, and so, kind of stuff. And people are like, oh, you know, this is what it should be. But I guess I'm wondering, is that what it should be? <laughs> yeah, look, uh, the worst thing you can do is play a prank on your child, right? And I'll say this very slowly, and as George Bush said about tax way back in the, when was it, the 2000s, read my lips, never, ever play a prank on your child at any age. Children learn by building trust in their parents. And when you play a prank on your child, the child suddenly discovers that they can't trust their parent. Mm. And that begets all sorts of anxieties. I mean, I'll give you, I read this on Facebook, somebody posted, they thought it was such a wonderful idea that they put it on Facebook. So, I mean, most little kids are scared of monsters. Right. One of the reasons why they build dinosaurs into the class learning structure very early so that kids can see that, you know, monsters do exist, but they're not monsters as you might dream about them. So anyway, here's the story that the dad is, and he's the one that wrote the story, is uh, saying goodnight to this little kid who's in bed, and the mother is out in the kitchen or something like that, and dad's saying goodnight, Freddie, or goodnight, Mary, or whatever it was, and then Dan says, and goodnight, monster that lives under the bed, and all of a sudden this voice comes from under the bed saying, goodnight, Jeez, <laughs> I'd be terrified about that. Yeah, that kid's going to be a, a psychotherapist's gold mine when <laughs> that kid becomes an adult. So what they thought was really funny is that they would use a tape recorder to tape the monster saying goodnight, and that when Dad said goodnight monster, he put his finger under the bed and pushed the play button, and the monster said goodnight, and they actually thought that was funny. And what was really scary was the thousands of people who thought that was really funny on Facebook. Mm. So, uh, I mean, our parents, they do hang it up, right? They really do. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was, because we know that monsters aren't real, you know, when you're older, but so you treat it as a joke, but to the kid, that's pretty real. <laughs> uh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you've got to develop strategies. I mean, again, I, I would advise former life hat on. Any parent, I mean, if the kid thinks there's a monster under the bed, get the kid out from in the bed and have a look under the bed and see that there is not a monster there. At all times, deal with reality. Right. So that's that's kind of the achievement way, I suppose, exactly. isn't it? Okay. So let's yep. test that theory, if you like, of the monster yep. being under the bed. How do we find out? Well, let's go. Yep. Let's go explore. Let's go yep. see. Which is also self-actualizing, I guess. It is indeed. Beautiful. All right. So, so 
what I was picking up when you're talking there, Sean, is it sounded like it was often driven when the parents were probably quite aggressive defensive yeah. themselves. So they had a need for control and authority and rules. Yeah, formality and, so and rules and conventions and time management by the clock and all this kind of stuff. Yep. And driving that through their kids. Yep. So it's often a reflection. Of, and because I guess from their point of view, what do they get? They get nice, obedient kids. Yeah, whichever one he likes. I mean, it's almost every parent's fantasy that sort of seven o'clock at night, you look at your kids and say, right, it's time to go to bed and go to sleep. And they all march off to bed and go to sleep. Mm. You can sit back and have a bit of a life, but unfortunately it doesn't work that way. So it also, and it, it factors in the necessity that with our busy lives and everybody's so mortgaged that both parents are working long hours, as it's really difficult to be a fantastic parent when you come in from work at sort of oh. when it's bedtime. And sometimes you leave home to go to work before they're even out of bed. Mm. So modern society does not make it easier for us. But And it's hard. I mean, it is difficult. I've, I've had children. I know what it's like to go weeks and weeks, if not months on end, without sleep and still have to function at the job. Mm, that's right. And come home and, you know, bring your best self rather than... <laughs> yeah, when all you want to do is crack the top off a bottle of wine, put your feet up and start drinking it, you've got these kids. <laughs> Bundles of joy, I think, is the word. Bundles Sean. of joy, yep. Okay, so if we if we move on then, if that's yep. the passive defensive styles, we move around to the aggressive defensive yep. styles. So yep. what are the beliefs underpinning these? Yeah, sure. So now we've got oppositional power, competitive and perfectionistic. So then they are aggressive defensive styles in that they are still ways of defending myself, but now I'll use aggressive strategies to feel safe. And so the beliefs about myself and oppositional that I actually should find mistakes. That when you give me a paper to read, there's an implied understanding that I will proofread it for you. Oh. Uh, and the fact uh, that will be helpful to you. Oh. And so, you know, I'm good at testing people and all these kinds of things. So and underlying a very high oppositional sort of style is somewhat suspicious of the world. It's like the world's out to get me, mild paranoia, oh. I suppose. Thoughts about how others see them is that they, you know, if I'm highly oppositional and I see this as my role in life, then people will see me as questioning, hard to impress, get straight to the crux of the issue kind of thing and searching. And the perceptions around actual versus should is that this very interesting things to oppositional is this being critical and intellectualizing things actually negates the necessity for me to commit. So an example would be the devil's advocate. The devil's advocate in a group situation is the safest role that you could play because you get to shoot down everybody else's ideas without ever having to have an original idea of your own. Mm. You can always say, I told you so, when it doesn't Correct. work. yep. And so, again, part of this actual versus should is that I will find it hard to trust people, and I wish I could, so I want to be trusted, mm. but it's hard kind of thing. Mm. Then we go to power, which is the uh, the particular form of power we measure as controlling power. So thinks about thought beliefs about themselves are that I need to be in control of myself and in control of what goes on around me. And the element of status is part of that power style as well. So it's the the need to feel important in comparison to others. So it's part of the growth development of self-concept. That person will look for ways to say, I'm better than you at this, et cetera, et cetera. So thoughts about how others see them is that they'll see me as resourceful. They'll see me as achieving. They'll see me as somebody who gets things done. So you'll know your, yourselves 
in your own coaching, when you've got a management person who's high on power, they'll say, yeah, but I get a lot done and and people see me as a high achiever or whatever it might be. Uh And that may well be true. It's just going to come at a cost to themselves and probably others as well. And you don't have to use power to get those outcomes. That's what they believe. And in terms of the perceptions around actual versus should, it's like if I'm not strong, I'm weak. So therefore, I always have to be strong. Uh And it's just... I'm not comfortable if I'm out of control. So this need to be in control all the time. So it's a need to kind of be invulnerable almost. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and, and it's a belief that you can be, which is a mm. sort of inaccurate belief from the get-go. Competitive, uh, this sort of need to win kind of stuff. And so one of the, the fundamental belief is that I am good if I am better than others. Mm. And so there's this constant comparison to others and the need to see themselves as being better than others in whatever walk of life they might be thinking. Mm. And an interesting part of this is not unlike approval, which is why you can see that bow tie fairly often in sales kind of situations, is I need others to accept me, which sounds like approval conventional, but it's the strategy to, to have others accept me is through admiration. So whereas approval is I want you to accept me by liking me, Competitive is I want you to accept me by admiring me. Mm-hmm. So now I have to prove to you how good I am. Well, I should be this, admired, yeah. yeah. all this kind of stuff. So thoughts about how others see them as they see me as a winner. They use those kind of expressions. The best stat, and at a pragmatic level, very competent. And somewhat like power, the, uh, the perceptions on actual versus should are quite powerful. So it's like losing is bad. And so I remember once... Uh, chief executive who I sort of knew through children only as opposed to professionally asked me to speak at a conference for him. And I was on after he, I never heard him talk before, but he started a speech off with, my father taught me that the person who comes second is the race is the first of the losers. And I'm standing thinking, well, you're not going to like what I'm about to talk about. (laughs) But that's a really cool, I mean, so there's actually literally, I guess we talk about in culture, leadership philosophy, if you will. (laughs) But actually there's kind of, Parenting philosophies like that or family philosophies. Well, I mean, this guy is a classic illustration of a highly competitive individual. He had these goals like he had to be a CEO by the time he was 40 Uh, and so on and so forth. And so, yes, he was a CEO by the time he was 40, but the company he was CEO of was bankrupt by the time he was 45 Um, (laughs) and went out and became a consultant. (laughs) Right. I'm trying not to laugh with Dominic on that one. So the perfectionistic style – this is where it, I use that phrase as a little technical one, but it's a good one. Ego task attachment to state. Ego, sorry, ego state attachment to task. And so it's like, if I do well, I am a good person. Mm. So that's what the perfectionist fundamental belief about themselves. Mm. So anything I do, I need to do very well. I am what I do. So if you threaten what I do, you are threatening me as an individual. Mm. On the other hand, the thoughts about how other people will see me is that they'll see me as very competent, that I achieve and get things done, and very knowledgeable, and the perceptions around actual versus should is that mistakes make me less of a person, so therefore mistakes should be avoided at all costs, Mm. and that's where the cost comes in because, of course, people, including perfectionists, make mistakes. Mm. It's how you deal with them that counts. Yeah, I often talk about that perfectionism as a need to appear Perfect, rather than yeah. people yeah. aren't actually perfect. Yeah, which can be quite a quite a tough conversation you're having with yourself if if that's how you're seeing the world. 
Yeah, look, I once knew a guy that was an extreme perfectionist and he decided to take up golf huh. to help him relax, but he would <laughs> play golf on his own because he couldn't stand the strain of potentially missing the tee-off shot in front of his three yeah, best friends. Yeah, right. So that's the sort of cost we talk about. <laughs> you do. Well, I'm, I'm not really a perfectionist, but I do feel that pressure sometimes too. <laughs> Especially, as, as we all do. That's all part of it. It's why they have a handicap system. <laughs> that's right. Especially that first hole when everyone's lined up behind you yep. and you're like, fuck yep. me. Yep. Why do they have to have a water hazard on this one too? <laughs> so, a water hazard is like an automatic magnet to the ball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what, as parents then, how we might be driving those kinds yeah. of... Uh, well, once again, hands. top of the tree is conditional positive regard. I mean, it's mm. just that important, this whole notion of conditional positive regard. So... As Dominic referred to perfectionistic about looking competent, looking good. So there, the value is based upon looking good mm. and appearing to do well and looking good in comparison to other people and being a winner and all these sorts of things. So it's it's absolutely and utterly conditional regard that if I win, I get all of this incredible praise and apparent love from dad. Mm. But if I lose, it's like I'm a loser. And mm. so they very quickly take that on board. And now the value, so whereas the, uh, and constructed the values and family stories, and of course stories are very important, they are the narrative of the family. So in the constructive styles, the values and stories are all about, you know, getting things done and helping other people. And in the conventional cluster, it's about, you know, being good and being obedient and pleasing others and subjugating yourself to others. Here the stories are about conflict and competition. So there's lots of, you know, stories about winning and losing is terrible and this team used to be good, now they're bad and all that kind of stuff. Not against sport. I want people to understand that. I think sport is absolutely critical for children. They learn a lot through both winning and losing. But it's how, like in everything in life, it's how the game is played that matters. Everything has to be done very quickly. So uh, where there's the rigidity of the clock that helps drive passive defensive behaviours, it's the speed at which things happen. And so you, again, you see parents walking along the street holding kids' hand. And you've got to remember that little three-foot-tall kid has to take at least three steps to every one of yours if you're something like six-foot-tall. Mm. And so you know, dragging the kid along turns the experience to a, from a potentially good one to a, a negative one for the child. So slow down, operate at their pace. Uh, the emphasis on a, on needing to appear competent, so people talk about the appearance of competence. There's sort of stories, again, and beliefs about combat. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, and it's a tough world Survival out there. Survival of the fittest kind of stuff. Exactly, yeah. Again, emphasis on criticism, so it's fault-finding and criticism of others. And people look very satisfied when they find themselves in a situation where they can be critical of others. And children learn that, therefore, you know, you appear to be important when you can find fault with what other people do. Mm. It's an obsession with failure. Failure is bad. And one of the strongest ways, and it's part of a conditional regard, if you like, is that children have grow up with a sense that, you know, nothing I do is ever good enough. Mm. So they're constantly trying to prove themselves. So, it's, you know, you go to your father and say, you know, hey, I got 90% for maths tests. And the response is, well, what the hell happened to the other 10% kind of thing? Mm. Or your brother got 95% or something Mm. like that. Right, so so one's driving perfectionistic and the other competitive. Correct. 
And so it's a sense that children have that, you know, nothing was ever good enough. So they've got to strive to prove themselves. And if you want a, a phrase that captures the aggressive defensive styles, it's all about that, trying to prove oneself. Uh, goal setting, again, talked about that under the other two clusters. In this case, it tends to be impossible goals. So that, again, the kids have to keep trying, trying and trying and not feeling their efforts making much difference. There's an emphasis on punishment, so there's quite rigid discipline, and children will always react against that in one way or another. If they haven't yet, they will when they're teenagers. Mm. And likewise with the passive defensive, there's a lack of uh, respect for one another and a lack of respect for others in the family. So I tend to distinguish this from the... um, from the passive defensive is around the stories and the values and the belief structures of the families around toughness, around competitiveness, around perfectionistic, around being in control, being on top and these kinds of things where the values, beliefs and stories underlying the passive defensive are around subjugation, obedience, conformity, compliance, etc., and not rocking the boat. Mm. But wrapped around all of that is still the same. Now we've got conditional positive regard as opposed to unconditional with constructive and so on and so forth. Mm. And so that conditional positive regard in that case is the whole like, if you're a winner, if you win, you get to sit up front or (laughs) whatever it is. And I get it. I get why people can fall into that because things like the, well, what happened to the other 10% on the test? You feel like you're driving performance, right? Yeah. And hey, look, they got 90%. They're pretty yeah. good, so it's working. Yeah, you and know? I think that's important just to digress away from children and into the people that we're dealing with every day, the management population, the organizational member population. As I tend to see high scores in the aggressive defensive styles in an LSI 1 as somebody who's trying to trying really hard to get people to perform. And also it could be relevant in the LSI 2 where you're trying really hard to get people to perform. You're just using the wrong strategies to do it. Mm. And I think that's the thing I've taken away from this conversation is really, it's actually quite subtle. It is. Sometimes. I mean, it some is. of them aren't so yeah. subtle, <laughs> but some of them are subtle, like the good boy, good girl thing, yep. you know, like, oh, I think we all just kind of do that yep. naturally to some extent, right? Especially because with kids, you want them to be sweet and, yep. you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of pride when you can sit there and your kid is behaving perfectly while everybody else's kid is going to town. But you've got to ask yourself what the long-term implications for the child are. And so, I mean, if I put it in summary form, one of the most important things you can do for your children is to allow them to become independent. Uh One of the other most important things you can do for your children is allow them to love themselves. And they're only going to do that if they get unconditional positive regard from the parents. You get those two things right, with the other stuff that hangs off like a belief in the importance of helping people who may not have the advantages that you have and all this kind of stuff they'll be good kids they'll be great kids they'll be productive kids I think they'll be great. constructive kids love it i think that's a great note to end on too sean so thank you we'll have a lot of this written up the presentation that you can download from the website too so if you're looking for a bit more information in the show notes for this episode of the podcast there'll be a link there where you can you can download um a PDF version of the presentation and and read a bit more detail about uh, how each style is driven and so on. All right, thanks for your time today, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. 
If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. Thanks for being part of our amazing community. We can only do it together with yourself. So long for now.